Hello, and welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. This show features conversations between diverse technology professionals discussing women in the industry, cutting edge innovations, the future of work, deeply technical topics, and the ways that we can all work together to make the world a more inclusive place. We hope you enjoy. And if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. Let's kick things off with Women Who Code Conversations. This week, we have an interview with Jessica Jolly, Senior Software Developer at Shopify. She discusses her passion for product development, the use of collaborative problem solving, and gives us more insight into her work at Shopify. Hello, my name is Jane and I'm a developer advocate at UIFlow. I was an engineer previously at Stack Overflow for a few years. And today I'm here with Jess, who's been a developer for six years by way of a multitude of other careers. When she's not coding, you can find her walking her dogs at an art exhibit or cycling around town. Nice to meet you, Jess. Nice to meet you, Um, I wanted to start out the interview by asking you a little bit about what got you into tech and how you found this career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, it's been uh, a path with lots of different uh, bumps and twists and turns. Um, But yeah, I actually went to school for communications and cultural studies. Um, I thought I would, you know, maybe work in uh, advertising or work in a museum, who knows? Uh, but I ended up a few years after that, um, preparing myself to go to law school. And the idea was to become a lawyer that specialized in, in tech and working in that space. So that was always, I think the new technologies and media and all of that stuff was always like at the center of my interests, like no matter what I was doing for school or what I was like working in. Um, And then before, um, a little before I was like due to head off to law school, I was like, yeah, some of my friends and I had been talking and they're like, yeah, you know, like maybe you want to try like a few other things before like dedicating yourself to this path. Like it's pretty rigorous and (laughs) time intensive. Um, And yeah, I had some friends who were developers and who uh, went and did boot camps, coding boot camps um, that took you know, just a few months. Um, and I had done like some light coding <laughs> in the past. I was like, yeah, okay. You know, there's, there's a lot of jobs in this area instead of me taking a look at technology from like a bystander sort of point of view, like I would be making stuff myself, which was like really interesting to me. Um, and yeah, I just sort of took a leap of faith. And I was like, you know what, let's try this one last adventure. Um, see how it goes. I don't really have anything to lose. And if I decide I don't really like it or it's not for me, well, it was just a few months. I learned a new skill. I met some new people and now I'll just go to law school. I'll be on my merry way. Um, and then sort of like to even my own surprise, <laughs> things sort of worked out. Uh, I ended up really liking it. And then straight out of my coding bootcamp, I got hired by Shopify and yeah, I'm still there all these years later. That's great. It sounds like you had a really good attitude towards being kind of open to whatever was going on. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think it helped to be just open, not stressed about it. Let's just try it. Yeah, yeah. But there was also like a definite interest in tech and digital spaces. Exactly. Um, How do you feel like coming from a boot camp has influenced the trajectory of your career? Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think the boot camp side of things, because it goes by so quickly um, and everything, at least for me, everything was really new. Like I really had no background or like much background in coding itself. Um, it really, and we paired every single day. That's how we learned and how we did projects. Um, so for me, the collaborative aspect was really important in my learning curve. And I think that's still like something that's super important to me to this day. Like I'm a really big advocate of pairing and of working collaboratively instead of, um, you know, some people uh, do this and they like working like this, but just, you know, going off on their own and just like writing a bunch of code and then like not really talking to anyone. Um, that's not really like my style, but I think that was definitely like influenced by the way that I, I learned how to code. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I saw that, I guess, a year or more so ago, you uh, were promoted into a senior. Can you tell me a little bit about what you think the difference is between more juniors who are fresh out of boot camp and somebody who's at your level, like a full senior at mm -hmm. Shopify? Yeah, a full senior. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think the biggest difference, and, and now I guess I have the perspective to, to sort of have an answer about it. Um, I used to think that a senior was someone who just had like all the answers, who had dealt with, you know, any, all the types of problems out there who could pick up any technology like really quickly. Um, but now I realize that the biggest difference now that I'm, I'm here in my career is no one really knows it all at any point. I mean, I certainly don't. I think the biggest difference is that a senior, as a senior, you can leverage your previous experience and the different problems that you've encountered before, different technologies, different challenges, and you can sort of leverage that previous experience into attacking or a nicer word, I guess, of dealing with you know your next project or that next big thing that you're working on. Um, Whereas, yeah, as a junior or as someone who, you know, is just coming out of a boot camp or just graduated from university, um, you maybe don't have that wealth of experience to sort of um, influence how, how you're going to come up with how you're gonna <laughs> deal with your next project or whatever it is. Um, so I guess in, the, in a way it's just, you're just better able to connect the dots between the things that you've done before and like to apply that to what you're doing now. Um, so I think that's, that's probably like the biggest difference for me anyways. Yeah, that makes sense. So it sounds like it's not necessarily about any specific knowledge, but more having kind of a framework of how to look at different types of problems. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. I think it also kind of leads into my next question, which is I, heard that there's a good mentorship program at Shopify. Um, and I think when you had mentioned it before, you also use the term jungle gym of experience, which mm -hmm. I hadn't heard before. So I'd love mm -hmm. to hear you expand on that and tell me a little bit about how that got started and what that means. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So sort of a twofold answer. Um, but yeah, within uh, engineering at Shopify, we now have a formal mentorship program. Um, which I think of about, about two years ago. So it was first started by a particular team and it was just so successful that they were like, why don't we do this um, across engineering? 
which is pretty crazy that we never really had something like that before. It was always more of like word of mouth and, oh, this person's a really good mentor. They're looking for, you know, uh, a new person to mentor or, oh, this person's looking for a mentor. And it was just like more of a networking sort of situation, um, which can be like quite intimidating, especially for someone who's, you know, um, fresh out of school or a junior or who's new to a company. It's like, sure, you can leverage, you know, your, your boss and some other people to, to help you with that. Uh, but now with this program, um, I think it's still run in six week um, increments. So it's short enough that it's not like too big of a time investment for any one party, um, but it's long enough that you can actually get through some of your goals. Um, and then I participated in the first cohort um, so both as a mentor and as a mentee. Um, and for me, it was so beneficial because it was the first time I was signing up for officially to be someone's mentor. And I, I didn't think before that I had anything to contribute. Um, and I really felt very insecure before that I took part in the program. And not only did I build like a relationship with the person I was mentoring and we still talk to this day, um, but also it validated that I actually um, can impact someone's growth and I actually have a lot to bring to the table. And on the flip side, um, the person who was mentoring me was a manager from another team um, who actually came from another, he actually came from like space engineering, like completely different um, yeah, background as me. And he was just such an amazing person and also um, lead that, we had a lot of con our conversations were more about like next steps in my career and career growth. And he just like gave me such a refreshing like perspective and it sort of solidified for me, like what I wanted to do next. Um, whereas before I, I think I had often questioned whether I wanted to uh, continue being a developer, like whether at Shopify or not. Um, and that's where sort of like the jungle gym, um, term comes in and that's something that we talk a lot about at Shopify, which is just that um, we more so have like a, an approach of, yeah, your career here is sort of like a jungle gym. Um, if, for example, yeah, I, I had moments where I was doubting continuing the engineering path. Um, I was like, yeah, I may be more interested in doing like product stuff and maybe going down that path. Um, there was like real openness there to be like, okay, yeah, sure. Like, do you want to like uh, maybe shadow someone for a little while or like work on this project that sort of needs another person maybe um, to help out? Or um, I've had friends move around from like completely different roles. Like I'm a designer and now I'm an engineer. Um, you see stuff like that all the time at Shopify. And I think that really that's why like we say hey this is like a jungle gym career um, type of place like whatever it is that you're interested in there's not only like opportunities for that but that is part of the culture so there is a real amount of like support um there as well like people i haven't really seen anyone be like oh no like just leave if you want to do something else while well, you gotta leave <laughs> like um like hey yeah you're like a really unique individual that brings something special to the table oh you're interested in this okay cool let's let's see how we can like set you up with those opportunities um and that's like really special and rare and i think that's why i've been here for so long 
um, even though, yeah, I've continued down the path of engineering, but in lots of different uh, parts of the organization and like super different types of projects. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like it's great because you get to experience a lot of different things and you get to yeah. see kind of what fits you best while you're always kind of building on something that will help you in whatever role you land in. Exactly, exactly. And we have also put in place lots of programs to sort of um, help with that, more formal programs. So uh, just a, a small plug, I guess. But yeah, there's, uh, for example, there's a program called the Apprentice, Apprentice um, Product Manager. Um, so yeah, that's sort of exactly that route. Someone who's like, hey, I'm really interested in that. I'd love to sort of learn that career. Okay, cool. We actually have like an official program for that, that you can be nominated for. That's very cool. <laughs> I feel like a lot of these kind of this kind of like ability to be flexible and to try and mentor people e either in the path that they've chosen or a new path like with this apprenticeship, all kind of speak to an inclusive culture uh, mm -hmm. in the workplace. Are there other things that you see happening that um, to you define like what an inclusive culture is or what does an inclusive culture mean to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think an inclusive inclusive culture <laughs> uh, is not just oh yeah having people from different backgrounds and different experience uh, having different experiences um, which is definitely something that we see at Shopify and it's also embracing differences it's not just like oh yeah okay we have these different people or these different ways of working but it's not just the acceptance of it, but like, hey, we're like embracing this. And this is like something that we're running head first into as sort of like a path, uh, both in terms of like the people that we hire and the people who are still here, um, but the ways in which we work. Um, but I think a big part of it is more so than any other workplace I've been in, um, we do really have like such a diversity of of people, not just like ethnicity, but also, yeah, experience, in terms of experience. Like for me, yeah, coming from a boot camp, there are people who are also self-taught in the engineering um, org or even in design or whatever it is, or people who had pretty much like next to no experience who did something completely different. Like even that manager that I was talking about who came from like space engineering stuff. And we're like, sure, okay, yeah. Um, and we're like, yeah, okay, you're going to bring like something new or like something completely different to the table. And we're embracing that fully. And that's like the special magic that makes us different than another workplace. That sounds great. It sounds really nice to be in a place that really accepts and welcomes diversity of thought like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I also want to uh, learn a little bit about the more technical side of your work. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit about a project that you're really proud of that you've worked on with Shopify? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm lucky enough that I'm proud of, I've worked on lots of projects and I'm pretty proud of all of that. But I would say the one that I'm the most proud of is um, one that I did a couple of years ago, which uh, was in the products area of Shopify. Um, so of course, that's sort of like the heart and soul of our platform. Like if merchants don't have products to sell, you know, they don't have a store. Um, but for pretty much since the beginning of the platform, 
um, the only media that helped merchants tell the story behind the products visually uh, were images. Um, and so we decided like, okay, we gotta do something about this. Uh, like we gotta at least have video, native video support. Um, and then we also decided to add 3D models, um, which is like a whole other world as well. Um, but the interesting thing, technically, there's lots of stuff going on there, but um, for one, we had to make sure that our product images, which is sort of like the legacy code, uh, was like something that was still working while we were adding all this new stuff to the code and trying to wrangle making the old and the new work together for a while, at least while we release stuff. Um, but then also learning about how like storing videos and how video compression works and we built a service around that um and then same thing for the 3d side of things um and then we also had to work it was a collaboration between like my team and the ar vr team at shopify and then all these other teams um as well because this impacted like shopify themes uh the online store lots of different areas um so it wasn't always easy having this many people involved, but it was also a really interesting project for that of like have it, having to collaborate across lots of different like priorities and getting to know like different people and seeing like, okay, how do we wrangle everyone together to make this project a success so we can actually release this to our merchants. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. It sounds like there's a lot going on technically and then you get to reach out to a lot of other teams and it's a really critical path. So like, it's yeah. definitely very impactful. Uh, and I imagine there was just a ton of testing as well. Oh yeah, and a lot of things going wrong, but we got there in the end, so. <laughs> That's great. Um, outside of work, is there anything else that you are really passionate about or that you really enjoy doing? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think, you know, while there are some people who spend time outside of work still doing stuff around code or computers or tech, um, I'm sort of in the other completely other spectrum of things. Um, I really like spending time outside with my dogs. Um, before the pandemic, I went to the movies a lot and really into cinema um, and really into museums as well and trying new restaurants and like food from all over the world. Um, for me, that's, it's what allows me to feel excited uh, to come back to work is like being inspired in all these different ways and sort of like feeding these different like parts of myself. Um, yeah, and it's what allows me to feel balanced. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's great. I feel like balance can be really important. Yeah, and that's what it looks like for me, um, and it can look <laughs> like different things for other people, so yeah. That's true, that's true. Um, I guess my last question to you is, do you have any kind of pro tips for either people who are starting out their journey or maybe mid-level, um, but people who are, other women who are in tech? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think going back to loop back around to like the senior thing and the trajectory to there, I think there's like a mindset switch that really helped me along the way, which is instead of thinking like, oh, I feel shame or I feel bad for not knowing something or, oh, they're talking about something that I don't quite understand. And again, sorry, my dog is barking, uh, feeling shame or feeling bad or like, well, I'm not going to speak up or say anything, uh, which I completely understand. Um, 
to have the mindset of like, hey, I don't know something or I don't understand something. And it maybe has nothing to do with with me. Like maybe this person is just not explaining it in a way that's digestible to me. And maybe I can just ask like, hey, this is how I like, like to learn how something works. Can you explain it to me in that way? Um, and yeah, to come from a place, to come at it from a place of curiosity instead of a place of, oh, I feel shame for not knowing things or understanding. Um, yeah, and just being gentle with yourself. Um, you can't know the things that you don't know and that just comes with time. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like it takes a little confidence maybe to get over this definitely. kind of imposter syndrome, but definitely, definitely the right attitude that can really help you. <laughs> yeah, and I guess like on the flip side, the thing that helps and I would say the hot tip I would give to other seniors is, yeah, if you can exemplify that behavior um, and say it out loud and juniors can see that of like, hey, I, I don't actually know. Or like, right. I don't know, let's figure it out together. Um, I think the more that people see it, the more we can all be like saying, hey, I didn't understand or I don't know. Um, so I think that's equally important too, to like creating a culture in which juniors can feel comfortable saying, yeah, can you explain that again? Or I don't know. Yeah, I really like that answer. I think that makes a lot of sense as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> also a part of an inclusive culture, right? That's welcoming exactly. and uh, beneficial for everyone, really. Exactly, yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today, Jess. It was really nice to meet you. Thanks, Darian. Um, and I hope you do well in the winter storm. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. This week, as part of our Women's History Month World Tour of Technologists, we'll be hearing from technology professionals living in Asia and Africa. We hope you enjoy it. And if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. Today on the Women Who Code Career Nav segment, we have Lily Chang, VP of Finance of Strategic Ecosystems and Industry at VMware. She's sharing her thoughts about building a culture for employee happiness and retention. This was originally a Connect Forward 2021 panel discussion that has been edited for time and context. You can find the full discussion on the Women Who Code YouTube channel. Enjoy. Um, I'm Lily Chan. Basically, I have a couple decades of uh, software product development experience. Even though my title is VP of Finance, my finance career started about five and a half years ago, which was a, a major career shift. And a lot of that uh, shift is really the inspiration from basically working with these uh, great members and the communities from Women Who Code. Um, I'm from VMware and basically being in VMware for close to 11 years and definitely has experienced uh, three generations of CEOs and uh, have basically been uh, engaged very actively in the DNI world, uh, fostering a lot of our company's culture on that and definitely being very privileged and proud to be part of the Women Who Go uh, leadership team and a part of the membership as well. I wanna uh, compliment a couple of key points. Uh, one is basically uh, a very uh, key aspect regarding the uh, 
the BNI, how you blended it into the culture is it has to be part of the company's workforce planning strategy. And basically the great resignation for a company that does not have a workforce planning that plan for the virtual office basically is the company that's caught a little bit by surprise, right? So it's very important that you have a strategic perspective and that strategic perspective and also the strategic execution thrust that's associated with that workforce strategy has to blend in very deeply and broadly, like Tara was saying, from many aspects, the diversity and the inclusion aspect, right? And the other key attribute that um, we have learned, at least within uh, VMware, what we have learned through the journey in the past decade, basically fostering this uh, culture within the company is basically, it's not something that your executives stand up and say, thou shall hire in diversity and inclusion, then things will happen. There is no fairy in the wonderland, right? So you basically have to institute a lot of, uh, and make action really happen about things that really matter for that uh, diversified group of employees. So one thing is people have to be uh, able to feel very comfortable to bring their individuality into work. And they will be working as part of the team, no matter what the team is, and no matter what the cross-functional effort is, but they have to be able to bring their individualism into all the aspects, that including the, the professional work and also the community aspect, right? The second thing is we are connected tissues with the external world. All of us do not just work at our workplace. We also are living in a society. So basically it's very important the company's uh, strategy also pays attention to that connected tissue. This is part of the reason why our corporation pays huge attention to, uh, to basically diversity and inclusion aspect. We celebrate uh, a lot of those within and embrace on that. Um, and so those are very important aspect. The third aspect is reality is also very important. So one of the key things we work really hard to establish is pay equality. So we ensure 99% uh, across all gender uh, pay equality within the company. And we believe the 1% is statistic noise, right? And we continue to try to do that. So those are the key things I think is actually very crucial. Um, in terms of uh, um, the great resignation, what we actually have seen is uh, offering employee flexibility to work virtually, even they're located in California, in Palo Alto. And even though our headquarters is in Palo Alto, if they choose to want to work virtually, we, would, we will support them. Actually during the pandemic, quite a bit of our employee actually relocate themselves and their family voluntarily to different states and some even to different country. And uh, our company supported that. I think that flexibility and the budgetary uh, endorsement is are extremely key for retention. Um, the additional detail I will add is we learn empathy at all levels are extremely critical because each family, just like Sandy was alluding to, right? Um, and this is the reason why you kind of see the mid-level as the most uh, a vulnerable layer because they are being 
kind of sandwich, more than sandwich, is a sandwich in multi-dimensional way, right? And but each family has its own individual situations. So what we have basically realized is it's extremely critical to foster at all levels of management and leadership an empathy. In other words, you have to be empathetic towards the employee situation. Even though you allow the employee to work remotely, you help them to move the family to closer to their grandparents because their grandparents got into situations in the pandemic. You also have to understand that they have to juggle a lot of stuff. And so performance is important, but you have to blend in empathetic aspects. So that's a little bit of a difference in terms of human management, right? And so empathy is, is one key aspect. Uh, one of the things I think women who could always support is a career development and career transition, right? And I think the, the great resonation is what I've seen happen is uh, there's a lot of that. People is not just moving company, they're moving career. They're focusing on different, uh, different areas or they are trying to learn different skills. So I think it's very important that, um, that all the companies and organization will bear that in mind, right? Career transition, all time high, it's really important to basically, uh, because right now learning doesn't have to be physically going to classroom. There are many virtual classes, university have shifted, right? So that created a huge opportunity for learning and which means that you know, a huge opportunity for people to do career transition. So I think that will be a very important aspect for all the employers and the management and leadership to be very open-minded about is um, you no longer need to think like this employee is my team, so forever is mine. That mentality gotta go. Women Who Code Talks Tech is a segment that features experts in a specific field of technology sharing their knowledge on an in-depth and highly technical subject. These talks are designed to both introduce advanced subjects and provide insight into the work being done in these fields. Today on Women Who Code Talks Tech segment, we have Pratima Rao Gluckman, engineering lead for VMware with an introduction to enterprise blockchain. So I am uh, engineering leader at VMware. I run the engineering team there. I'm also an author of a book called Nevertheless, She Persisted, True Stories of Women Leaders in Tech. I'm passionate about diversity and inclusion in tech. And the idea of uh, writing this book was to create a lot of role models to make things possible for young girls and women to want to come into STEM and be leaders in tech because we can. And most importantly, uh, I am a mother of three kids. I have an eight-year-old um, boy and five-year-old twins, boy-girl twins. So I don't do it all, but I just want to tell you that, you know, you can do some of it. So blockchain, uh, and I will talk about blockchain a lot, and I will talk about trust of data. That's what blockchain is. Amanda talked about data. Right? It was a very enlightening talk because there's tons and tons and tons of data out there. But can you trust that data? And, and what blockchain allows you to do is be able to trust that data. Now, the way you can trust that data is not centralized trust. It's actually decentralized trust. So I'll talk about what, what that means. So if you look at a database, a database is centralized. right? So you have a centralized source of truth 
but you don't own that data and you don't know if you can trust that data because someone else is responsible for this data. They're modifying this data and you're not. The other thing with, uh, with databases is that you, know, you can put in a record which says Pratima works at VMware, right? And so there's a record in the system. Now I go find another job, say I go to uh, um, Facebook. What you'll do is you'll go into the database and say now Pratima works at Facebook. But with blockchain, you don't do that. What you do with blockchain is a, it is an append-only log. So you basically go in there and say, Pratima works at VMware, and then Pratima now works at Facebook. So what you can do is it gives you a history of transactions. It gives you some auditability. And so this is my first clue on solving that college business scandal, right? So think about it. So blockchain gives you decentralized trust, which is very important. If there's one thing that I want you to walk away with is decentralized trust. So there's no central authority that is holding on to your data. There's no central authority that you have to trust. If everyone gets a copy of this data, and all of you can trust that data. So what does blockchain really promise you to do? Well, if you want to become a billionaire, sure, go buy Bitcoin whatever, right, <laughs> get into that lottery system and become a billionaire. Or you could just write a white paper tonight because we're all smart people here in this room and we can go start an ICO tomorrow. But that's not what VMware blockchain promises to do. And blockchain doesn't solve world hunger and it doesn't solve everything. You know, Amanda talked about, you know, all these use cases that she had for machine learning. Blockchain is not like that. Blockchain solves very specific use cases, and we'll jump into those use cases. So there's, if someone comes and says, oh, you know, I want to do blockchain for this or blockchain for that, it has to be a viable use case. And what we've done is we've talked to tons of partners and tons of customers, and we've actually nailed it down to four solid use cases where blockchain will really help. So going back again, it's giving everyone the same trust of data, which is decentralized trust. And I'll keep talking about this as we go along in the presentation. So that's, that's the key of it. So this is the same thing. It basically says, you know, everyone gets the same copy of data that they can trust. So the four use cases, I'll start with the first one. This is guaranteed and verified data dissemination. So this is your second clue on how to solve the college admission scandal, because every uh, every um, institution will have a copy of data. So, for instance, disease reporting. So, so there's, say there's a new disease that crops up. What, what you can do is put that data into your blockchain, and all the institutions that need to know about this, all the regulators and auditors, whoever, they can get access to the same copy of data, and so they will know if there's going to be an outbreak or not. So that way they can prevent anything that can happen you know, in society. So that I think is impactful. But think about it also in terms of the, the business scandal because you've got incentives here. <clears throat> the second is asset and product tracking. I like this. Uh, I love drinking beer. Who likes beer? Right? There is a lot of fraud in this world. <laughs> right? So what happens is the beer that you're drinking may not be the beer that actually came from the company you think made the, made the beer. So during the, from the manufacturing process to the consumer, you don't know the product that you're consuming actually came from that particular brand. And so blockchain will help you do that. So it'll actually track your product. So it'll basically say, okay, this beer got manufactured by Heineken, 
it went to this retailer, distributor, and then a supplier, and then it finally got to a liquor store. Right? And so you can have an application, a blockchain application on your phone. So while you're sitting and drinking beer on a Friday night, you can basically scan your beer and it'll tell you exactly where your beer came from. Isn't that cool? There's actually a restaurant down in Palo Alto called Counter. Um, if you go eat there, they'll say, you know, it's, I don't quite personally like that, but they'll say, oh, this burger you're eating came from this cow Amy. <laughs> And I'm going like, I truly don't want to know, <laughs> right? Like I'm eating Amy right now. You know what I mean? But <laughs> you have that power, right? You have that power. As a consumer, you have that power in your hands, which is fascinating. And so that's why I think blockchain can change the world and how, how we transact um, between each other. Asset transfers. So asset transfer is, um, I'll give you an example. So the way we do asset transfers right now is we write things like smart contracts. So smart contracts are just programs that get written onto your blockchain and they get executed. So you could write a program saying something like, and I'll use Alice and Bob because we like Alice and Bob. So Alice wants to uh, sell a couch for $300. Now, Bob comes in, and so there's a smart contract that basically says if, you know, if somebody pays Alice greater than $300, we sell the couch. If not, we just, we don't sell the couch. Now, Bob comes in and he says, you know what, I can pay $310 for this couch. So when, once he comes in and says, I want to pay um, Alice $310, this contract will get executed on the blockchain. And the transaction will get persisted in the blockchain, right? So now Alice can't sell the couch to Bob and then go and sell the couch to someone else, right? So this double spending problem doesn't exist in a blockchain. So that is very critical. So a lot of Bitcoin today also solves that problem. It solves the double spending problem. And so this is very crucial in terms of um, blockchain because now you know you can trust that transaction. You can trust that you are getting that couch and it's not like this couch was promised to someone else and this, you know, this person's not going to come knocking on your door and saying, hey, you know what, I just, uh, Alice just sold me that couch and now that's my couch, right? So it prevents things like that with some of the use cases that we can have for blockchain. So asset transfer is one of those things where you can programmatically write these smart contracts and they'll get executed on your blockchain. Certified claims. So this, and I'll, this is my third hint, perhaps, or my fourth, I'm forgetting. But what you can do here is you can basically do background checks. You can actually go in and, you know, call, um, say, if I went to Harvard and I got, I don't know, hand-weaving basket degree, right? Someone calls in and says, did Pratima get this degree? And then Harvard can say, yeah, she did, or no, she didn't. She got a degree in advanced pet sitting. I'm sure there's degrees like that at Harvard. Um, and so there's fraud involved in that, right? And instead of, instead of everyone calling Harvard and saying, oh, did Pratima graduate from this place? And Harvard's like, no, she never graduated. Or she did graduate. Or like 20 or 30 people calling, in, calling Harvard. Harvard can keep that data, which you can just go and look that up and say, oh, in like a second you can say, oh, you know, it's, you can verify that. You can say, oh, did Pratima go to Harvard and get this degree? And you will know right away. So if you look at a lot of the background checks that we do, and I'm a hiring manager at VMware, um, 
And in my 20 years, I actually haven't seen a lot of background checks fail, but I recently had one. There was this one candidate who said he graduated from a particular university, um, and he didn't. Uh, and we didn't know, right? But it was through backdoor reference checks. I don't know what it was. I was sitting at the Singapore airport, and we said, oh, we're giving an offer to this person. And I said, out of a whim, I said, can we do some backdoor reference checks? And they said, sure, let's go ahead and do that. And then it got an email like 48 hours later saying that he actually lied. And he didn't actually go to the university. He said he did. And you won't believe there are many cases like that. Right? So... Um, I know it's shocking to us, but it happens, and it happens in sheer numbers, and blockchain will actually prevent that. So VMware is looking into certain areas um, where blockchain can be viable. One is the supply chain use case, and all of you should be familiar with this, um, though it sounds very enterprisey, but in some ways it actually impacts all of us, right? So you go from a producer, like say... Um, you know, you're, um, you're getting uh, your, fruits of, your fruits from some farmer, right? They're the producer. It goes to a processor that actually processes these oranges or whatever or fruit that you're getting, and then it goes to the wholesaler, the distributor, and then finally it comes to you as a consumer. And the four use cases that I talked about was product tracking. So this is where the consumer says, okay, you know what? I ordered a basket of oranges from your store, uh, from this farmer. Where is it, right? So you're actually trying to uh, track your product that way. And then your producer sends you, you know, all these coupons and whatever, right? That's, that's data dissemination, uh, distribution in some sense, or recall information like, don't eat those oranges. No, I'm kidding. Um, or something like that, right? So they're the ones who are giving you all this information. And then you have um, asset transfers where this particular asset is getting transferred from, say, a processor to a wholesaler to a distributor. And you also have a way for a distributor to go and actually verify and do a lot of inventory checks on that particular asset. So if you look at a supply chain use case, blockchain is fantastic here because it takes those four use cases and it, it actually puts it through this entire supply chain use case. Similarly, we can use blockchain in financial services where, you know, if you're doing a stock exchange, you're buying and trading and selling um, stocks, there's one way of doing it because that, again, is some form of an asset transfer, right? Um, and you want it to be verifiable and trustable and you want to have, um, want to, want to have integrity of that data. So blockchain is very, very powerful in financial services as well as in your supply chain use cases. And that's kind of where VMware is totally focused on and targeted. I do want to tell you that what we're doing is private and permission blockchains. What Bitcoin does is public blockchains. What I mean by that is you can actually today go and get a Bitcoin node. You can get an Ethereum node on your laptop. And no one knows who you are. And, any, and actually all of us in this room can go do it. Right? So that's a public blockchain. But and what VMware is implementing is a permissioned private blockchain where we trust you, we, we know who you are, so you're part of some consortium, and then you get invited to this particular consortium, so we know who you are, and so that way we, we have some level of, some, some form of an identity as to who you are, and we can trust you. So it kind of goes against the public blockchain model where you're anonymous in some sense, but here you, we know who you are and we know we can trust you, but we don't know anything more than that. 
right? We we don't know your name and where you live and all that, but we know you are a trusted party and we know that we've invited you to this network and so we can trust you. So VMware's blockchain um, is basically three pillars right now that we're looking at. We open sourced um, uh, an infrastructure called Concord, which basically uses an algorithm called Scalable Byzantine Fault Tolerance. How many of you have heard of BFT? Okay. <clears throat> so in the olden days, we used to have these uh, Byzantine generals. So Byzantine basically means malicious. And uh, so you had like, say, three generals that are trying to attack a city. And they would have to send messages. You know, they didn't have cell phones like we do. Um, and so they would have to send messages to each other, basically saying, hey, you know, I think we can attack at 4 a.m. in the morning or we'd retreat. And what the generals would do is they would send messengers on a horse. And so this person on a horse would go to the other general and say, oh, we're going to attack, right? Um, but somebody can actually kidnap this uh, messenger, right? Or they could impersonate this messenger. So every time you get a message, you don't know if you can attack or you have to retreat. So the SBFT model basically says is if you have two-thirds consensus, then you can trust it. You can have, you can tolerate up to one-third of malicious actors in a particular network that you can trust the data. And so that's what Concord does today. So it basically runs by this formula called 3F plus 1, where F is the number of malicious nodes VMware infrastructure can tolerate, um, tolerate to the point where then we can say, you know what, you can trust this data, there's liveness in this data, uh, there's integrity in this data, and you can trust this data. So if you basically say, I can tolerate two malicious nodes, then your formula is going to be seven, right? So you can have seven nodes, project uh, Concord nodes in your blockchain nodes, which are your blockchain nodes, in the system, and you can tolerate two malicious nodes. Now, if you have more than two malicious nodes, you're host. You can't trust that data. But based on that formula, you can basically say, you know what, I can tolerate two malicious nodes, and I can go with a seven-node configuration. So that's what Project Concord does. Is Byzantine a Is the what? I'm sorry? Um, no, I'm not sure about that. Just because Perhaps, yes. I should go look. That's an interesting, interesting thing. You'll get a copy of my book. <laughs> I'll go look it up. Uh, the second thing we want to do is the the other thing we want to do is we want to make this enterprise grade um, decentralized trust. What we mean by that is we want to be able to uh, scale a lot of the nodes. If you, if you look at Bitcoin today, they can, um, there's a concept called time to finality, which means the time it takes for your transactions to get persisted on the ledger. And Bitcoin is around, I think, around 6 to 10 transactions per second. Ethereum's around 15, uh, which means that you can use it when you're doing Christmas shopping, right? Because we're all charging our cards, and imagine if it just if it took 10 transactions uh, per second, we'd be getting nowhere. So if you look at Visa, they process 10,000 transactions per second. I think PayPal does 1,000, 2,000 transactions per second. And VMware is trying to get to that level, right? So right now we do, uh, with what we've built, we can transact around 445 transactions per second. So we're trying to optimize our platform to make it enterprise ready. Um, you know, we won't be most enterprise use cases don't require that level of throughput, but if you look at financial services, when people are trading stocks, 
the throughputs are a lot higher. So we want to make sure that we can actually scale and we can get to that throughput um, um, throughput at, to that grade. So one the thing that we're doing right now is trying to get to this enterprise grade decentralized trust. The other thing is, you know, robust day two operations. What that means is you first come in, you say, you know what, I want a seven node blockchain, we install it for you, and then you go away. But then day two operations is being able to monitor it and debug it, manage the life cycle of some of these blockchain nodes in the system. So that becomes a critical thing. So VMware is doing that. The third thing that we're trying very hard, and this is the fun part for me, is making it developer friendly. So what that means is getting these developers, like smart contract developers, which I think is a great area for you to, all of you to look into, is being able to write these smart contracts that you can persist on the ledger, right? Um, so what we support is we support Ethereum virtual machine where you can actually go write solidity contracts on this virtual on on and persisted in the in the in the blockchain, and it's almost like JavaScript. If you know JavaScript, you know Solidity is, you know, it's got promises and all those things that JavaScript has, and you know it's it's, it's very familiar. So you can actually go off and write these smart contracts on your system. So what VMware's challenge, or what I see as a challenge, is we you know we can do the first two, we're great at it. The third is trying to build this ecosystem of developers to build a lot of use cases on your platform. And that's, um, that's why we do a lot of hackathons. We try to uh, attract a lot of developers who can come and build these smart contracts on your, on your platform. So Project Concord is open source. So it's out there. It's all in C++. You can go get it, download it, um, run a node on your machine. And you can start writing smart contracts. You can deploy it. You can look at the transactions. Yay, right? What we've done is we. VMware is a very green company. It's one of the things I really like about working there. Um, and uh, if you look at Bitcoin, if you transact Bitcoin, how many of any of you mined any Bitcoins? Okay. So when you mine a Bitcoin, the resources it takes to mine that Bitcoin can power Ireland. That's how much resources we use to mine one Bitcoin. So it's a lot of resources that we use. And that's why, you know, people can't afford it. And so you have these mining groups and you have, you know, a Bitcoin, you have, you know, like a huge, large sum of people who can afford it and who can afford these resources who are constantly mining. So they have the power. Um, and so what VMware basically decided is, you know what, this is um, actually Pat Gelsinger, CEO, basically said it's immoral. He said these blockchains today that exist are immoral. And he was very clear he wanted us to build an energy efficient platform. And so with SBFT, that's what we built. And if you actually go into the technical details of SBFT, the way we do that is we tweaked this algorithm called PBFT, where the communications between all the nodes was exponential. And what we did with our uh, innovation team, our research team, was the communications between our nodes is now linear because we use this concept of collectors. So the, you have these collectors in the system that actually take the messages that the nodes send it and then send it to the client, which is your smart contract or your decentralized application. And so what we've done is we've gone from an exponential algorithm to a linear algorithm, which really simplified our uh, energy efficiency. And so we're really, really proud of it. And we also figured out some smart ways of being able to persist our transactions faster than EVM. So that's why our throughput's a lot higher than Ethereum virtual machine, if you look at it today. 
The other thing we've done, and this is a differentiator for us, is we don't want to lock ourselves into a single cloud provider. What that means is we want to be able to run this infrastructure on multi-cloud. Because when you go to customers and you talk to customers today, they're not tied to one cloud. They don't just have Azure or Amazon right? They, um, or Google Cloud. They have all three clouds running in their business. And so we don't want to lock our customers to a single cloud provider. So what we, our differentiation story is basically saying you can have these clouds on, I mean, you can have these blockchain nodes on these different clouds. And I talked about better scaling and throughput where we really want to make sure that we want to get to high scale. One of the things that is going to take a very long time for blockchain to become mature is actually scaling and throughput. That's a big one because the existing platforms today don't have that. We don't have standards around it. So there's a lot of work that needs to happen with enterprise businesses before we can get to um, a production ready blockchain. So if you hear someone says, someone saying, hey, you know, there's, um, we run, we're in production on blockchain, don't believe them because even we're not in production, we're like in beta. Um, because it's very hard to get to that scaling and throughput, and everyone's trying to work towards that. And this could be, you know, I don't know how long it'll take, but it's going to take some time. The languages we support are Ethereum Virtual Machine. We support something called Hyperledger. And uh, we recently signed a contract with uh, this company called Digital Assets, and we support uh, the DAML language. So it's digital assets modeling language. I don't know if any of you are familiar with EVM and Hyperledger that's out there in the market today. Okay, okay. Um, so, so we'll start with how Bitcoin started, right? Um, Satoshi, uh, I actually have a t-shirt that says Satoshi's female, it bugs everyone. Because <laughs> we don't know, everyone says he, 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 and I'm like, what? Could be a woman, right? And maybe it was a woman who basically didn't want to say she was a woman because then the world wouldn't take her seriously, right? So, um, so Satoshi went off and created uh, pretty much blockchain for Bitcoin. And Bitcoin was one of the first use cases for it. And then Ethereum came along, uh, where basically Ethereum came and said, oh, that's great, we'll build smart contracts, we'll make it programmatic. So they went off and they built smart contracts. Then Hyperledger came in and basically said, hey, we want to be the first enterprise um, uh, platform and so they went off and they basically said you know you don't have to do solidity or anything you can write java code so that's their thing is the, so they, they call it chain code so you can write write it in any language and it'll work on hyperledger um, and uh, there's a lot of effort happening in the hyperledger community and the evm community to get to scaling and throughput but they have a lot of problems in terms of um, you know just their time to finality their scaling throughput and so we went off with really smart researchers and we built uh, Project Concord. Okay, so our, um, our core is you know, Project Concord, that, that's basically our infrastructure. We wanna build a lot of utilities uh, around it, uh, things like key management, zero knowledge proofs, identity management, so people know who you are, um, and multi-blockchain is being, uh, going across these different blockchains like EVM and Hyperledger and all these other things. And on top of that, we want to build these blockchain apps. for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission 
and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.